And all of God's people said amen. amen. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, team. This week I looked up the definition of pride at the Oxford Dictionary. And here is what the Oxford Dictionary said about pride. It's an overwhelming opinion of one's own quality or merits. And my beloved friends, pride is something we all have to deal with all the time. There was a time when I was a younger preacher, and I learned a very valuable lesson from my mentor, John Stott, who was here spending a week with us nearly 30 years ago. And the lesson he taught me was this. I used to think that when you get older, you lick pride. And he assured me that he never will until you get to heaven. You see, it was pride that caused Adam and Eve to be thrown out of the garden. It was pride that keeps many people from coming to Christ. Pride prevents many people from accepting God's free gift of salvation. Pride keeps professing Christians from submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Pride blinds people as to, as to their desperate need. Pride was the very thing that caused Lucifer, the angel of light, to become the father of lies. Pride hardened Pharaoh's heart and got him drenched in the Red Sea. It was pride that dethroned King Saul from the throne of Israel. But before I keep going on this and explain what the Apostle Paul is saying here about pride, I, I need to explain something about our use of the term pride. Sometimes we use it somewhat erroneously. For example, uh, when we mean to say to one of our children uh, and encourage them for what they've done, we say, well, I'm proud of you. We say, I'm proud of you, right? What we often mean is that we are so glad that they worked hard and accomplished something significant, right? Without this explanation, we make the mistake of developing in them and in us the wrong understanding. A more accurate way of speaking to our children or grandchildren, as I was telling this just the other day to one of my grandchildren, thank God for empowering you. Thank God for gifting you. Thank God for blessing you with a good mind and perseverance, etc. Otherwise, the pure human pride, and this is where the distinction is going to come, the pure human pride can become a snare for all of us. Pure human pride causes all sorts of strife. I know you know experientially what I mean by this. Uh, human pride ruins many a great relationship. Uh, it keeps us from knowing God intimately, causes us all sorts of isolation and loneliness. In fact, pride in itself can also cause us to steal the glory that belongs to God alone and take the credit to ourselves. Listen to me. Pride causes self-centeredness. Uh, it, 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 it produces a demanding spirit. It gives us an air of superiority, sarcasm, 
uh, a critical attitude of others, uh, self-importance, and unteachable spirit. And one of the ways to recognize pride, if you are constantly in a state of self-pity. Now, I'm not saying occasional discouragements. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about constantly, woe me, poor me, and constantly in a state of self-pity. Pride, as somebody said, is a disease that everyone around is aware of except the person who has it. And that is why pride should be like a beard. It needs to be shaved every day. In the last message from Romans 2 and 3, we saw the Apostle Paul telling the self-righteous, the religionists of his day, that relying on their physical descendants from Abraham, relying on the mere knowledge of the law, and relying on anyone or anything for salvation other than the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ on the cross will only lead to a false sense of security. Remember that? Hello? Some of you do. Now, here today, in chapter 3, beginning at verse 19, all the way to 425, he continues this disabusing them uh, of their false sense of security. He continues in that theme. But Paul said there's actually, and here it comes, there is actually good kind of pride. Did you hear me right? There is good pride. There is actually the right way to brag. And it's okay to do that. There's a healthy way to be braggadocious. No, it is not about your accomplishment. It's not about your achievement. It's not about uh, uh, what, what, what you have done or have not done. It is not about going through certain rites and certain rituals. No, and certainly it is not about who your ancestors are. Back in 1984, we almost moved to Virginia. Well, when that was, looked like a possibility, a friend of mine said to me, he said, now if you're going to live in Virginia, there's some things you need to know. He said, there are two groups of people in the world who worship their ancestors. The Buddhists and the Virginians. <laughs> well, I'm glad we stayed in Atlanta. And here the Apostle Paul gives us four ways to rightly brag, four ways to rightly be proud of, four ways uh, about our salvation for which we can express absolute pride. In verses 21 to 31 of chapter 3, he said, you can brag about God who gave you salvation as a free gift. In verses, four, uh, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 4, he said, you can brag about God's faith, not yours. And thirdly, in verses 9 to 17 of chapter 4, he said, you can brag about God's grace, not your works. 
And finally, verses 18 to 25 of chapter 4, he said, you can brag about God's power, not your brilliance. Now, the last part is my two cents worth here. You can brag about what God has done for you. Look at with me, please, verses 21 all the way to 31 of chapter 3. But as you look at this, let me ask you a question. Why is it? Why is it okay to brag about what God did? Why is it, when we talk about pride, why can you take pride in that? <laughs> this is how, I, I, the, the best way I can explain this from the Scripture, not from my own understanding. If you're standing on a high-rise building, you say you're up on the 30th, 40th floor of a high-rise building, and you're looking down the street. Here's a question now. Can you tell the difference between a four-foot-seven person and a seven-foot person? Can you? No. You can't tell the difference because they all look alike. I mean, you're just walking. You can't see. You can't distinguish. When God looks at His humanity, when He looks down at His human creation, He sees all people all look alike to Him. <laughs> nice people, mean people, they look alike. Uh, rich people, poor people, they look alike. Uh, when God looks down... He doesn't see someone in the valley and someone on the mountaintop because it doesn't make any difference whether the person is in the valley or the mountaintop if the goal is to reach the stars, right? I mean, the guy on the top of the mountain, he's, he's going to jump as, you know, just as much as high as the guy in the valley if he wants to reach the stars. Neither of them can. <laughs> Neither whether the person in the valley or on the mountain can touch the stars. But the goal is touching the star. That's salvation. If you want to be saved, it's like a person who wants to touch the stars. And the only way for anyone to be saved is to be able to touch the stars. You say, we're in a predicament. You got that right. <laughs> Hang in there with me. I'm going somewhere with this. Okay? We judge people on the basis of their social status. Uh, we judge them on the basis of uh, um, uh, what they've done or, or how, how much they accomplished, how famous they are, or, 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 or what their achievements may be. But as far as God is concerned, the difference between these people is negligible. It is negligible. A sinner in thought and a sinner in deed are on the same level to God. Therefore, God is the only one who can reach down and take the person's hand, whether he's in the valley or he's on the mountaintop, and stretch that hand to reach the star. Can I get an amen? God is the only one who can do that. Look at verse 23. For all, can you say all? all. Have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious ideal. For all have sinned. And because it is God who gives us the gift of salvation, because it is God who reaches down and lifts us up, you cannot brag about how high you can jump. Hello? There was a film many years ago called White Man Can't Jump. I don't care if you're white man, black man, yellow man, green man, it doesn't matter. You, know, you can't jump. You can't jump that far. 
And that is why you can brag about God's wonderful graciousness in lifting us up from the depths of our sin. And Paul is saying here, all people, Jewish people, Gentile people, all people have sinned, and they were all in one boat, and that boat was sinking. We all deserve judgment, but God comes in, and He gets us out of that sinking boat. You say, how? See, God Himself becoming man is the only way that He comes and dies on that cross and sheds His blood to pay the price, the redeeming uh, price of redeeming us from sin. Question, who gets out of that sinking boat? Uh-oh. We're getting heavy here. Who gets out of that boat and who doesn't? Let me tell you from our point of view, not from God's point of view. I'll get to that some other time in the epistle to the Romans. From our point of view, everyone who places his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ completely as his only Savior and Lord is pulled out of that boat, that sinking boat. Are you with me? In Romans 3.24, he tells us that God's gift of salvation is totally undeserved. It is totally undeserved. You did not do anything to deserve it. I have cannot do anything in ten lifetimes to earn it. And that is why I cannot brag about it. How can you brag about something that is given to you? You had nothing to do with it. How can you brag about it? <laughs> How can you brag about something that was handed to you? All you did is stretched your hand and took and said, oh, I have deep pride in the fact that I put my hands out. Isn't that wonderful the way I put my hand out there? And isn't it wonderful that I took that gift? Uh, no. When it comes to our salvation from sin and judgment, boasting is unthinkable. Why? Because God did it all. Say it with me. Because God did it all. Can you say it with enthusiasm? On the cross, the king pardoned my crime. On the cross, the king adopted me, who was a spiritually homeless. On the cross, the king gave us his name. On the cross, the king gave us his power. On the cross, the king gave us his wealth. On the cross, the king not only paid my debt, but he gave me untold an unlimited line of credit. Why? Because the king not only washed my filth, but he dressed me up in a royal garment. Because the king not only broke away my chains, but he seated me down next to him. Therefore, I have nothing to brag about. Nothing to brag about except the cross of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. People ask... People ask this question for many, many years. And I, I am certain, I know most of you, so I know probably most of you, that's not a question on your mind. You already probably know the answer. But if it's one person has that question, it's important, whether a person watching around the world or right here in this sanctuary. The question is, how do I know that I'm saved? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever asked that question. But if you did, it's a good question. And don't 
ever hesitate asking good questions. <laughs> I want to give you a do-it-yourself test. This is, this is a home test kit. Take it with you and apply the test. Here's what the questions you should be asking yourself if you're not sure about your salvation. Do I love Jesus with all my heart? Do I hate sin? And I'm revolted by it. And I'm talking about sin in my life, not in somebody else's. And I cannot rest until I confess it and repent of it. Do I take credit for my salvation or boast only in the cross of Christ? Do I have a genuine longing to spend time with the Father? Do I love serving Him by serving His people and His church? Am I growing in my intimacy with Jesus? Do I love to obey the Word of God? Here are the questions. You can, if you didn't write them down, you can download them later on. The right pride is bragging about Jesus. Can I get a witness? Now, beloved, I was thinking about this all week. I said, Lord, whatever years you've got left for me on this earth, I want to spend them bragging about Jesus. I want to spend them bragging about Jesus more than ever before in my life. Secondly, the right way to brag is about his faith, not yours. There are some people within the evangelical tradition, some, some evangelical churches, when you hear them talk about faith, you have to, you're left with the, with, the, with, the, with the impression that they're making faith look like works. It's something you did. When you listen carefully to them, it sounds like works. Faith, beloved, is not something you whip up. I've got to have faith. I've got to have faith. I've got to have faith. When you see that. <laughs> no, because faith is a gift from God. When you ask for it, he'll give it to you. In fact, the entire fourth chapter of Romans, Paul uses Abraham as an illustration of salvation by faith alone, not works. To be sure, in verses 6, 7, and 8 of Romans 4, he throws in David here for good measure <laughs> as a person who really said, bless the man whose sins are forgiven and not counted against him. But it is Abraham that Paul is focusing on like a laser beam. Why? Because in the Jewish literature, in the time of Paul, it was filled with how righteous and how wonderful and how good and how faith-filled Abraham was. Most of this literature defined Abraham's faithfulness as a form of good works, that God looked down and he saw Abraham, how wonderful he is, and then he chose him. And Paul wants to disabuse them of this. Most of this literature gives all of the credit to Abraham, not to God. And that is why Paul is focusing really hard on Abraham. What does it mean? The Jews in the first century believed that Abraham was justified because he was good. Are you with me? 
You see, that is, you've got to understand why he's focusing on this thing and hammering away at it again and again and again. Paul focuses, I mean, he immediately faces this heretical, this erroneous thinking, erroneous teaching right head on, especially since it wasn't Abraham's perfection that was credited to him. In fact, his faith was about as far from perfect as you get. In Genesis 15, 6, it tells us, Abraham believed God and was credited to him. It was reckoned to him. He, he, it's not something that he earned, but it's something given to him as a gift, a credit, as righteousness. He was justified by faith before he did any work, good or bad. And so it is with you. And so it is with me. All that Abraham did, he trusted God. All Abraham did, he took God at his word. And don't ever forget, don't ever forget that Abraham bungled and fumbled and stumbled. Don't ever forget that he lied and he schemed and he tried to help God out and made a mess of things. Don't forget that. Because God gets all the credit, not Abraham. But God kept on allowing His grace to cover the shortfalls. <laughs> God kept allowing His grace to cover the shortfalls. <laughs> you have some evangelicals today, as the Jews in the first century, they're doing the same thing about faith. My faith did this. My faith accomplished that. My faith healed. My faith did. My faith, my faith protected me from. <laughs> if it's all your faith, who needs the Lord, right? Who needs Him? If your faith did it, are you with me? Actually, some of you look stunned. As you say, is this something new? It's not. It's the Word of God. And furthermore, if your faith did it all, what are you going to do when you go to heaven? God, I'm so glad I'm here. I'm glad my faith brought me here. Are you going to do that? <laughs> Beloved, that is the wrong application of what faith is all about. I know. When I get to heaven, I'm going to fall on my face. I said, I'm unworthy and I'm deserving. It is your faith that brought me here. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving me the faith to believe in you and be redeemed. Listen, you must understand, faith is a channel through which God works His redemption. Faith creates a convicted heart and stretches out the hand to receive salvation from His hand. And because faith is a gift from God, there is nothing to brag about except the cross of Christ. You know, I always love the wisdom that comes from children. I really do. I mean, so I'm, I'm absolutely very in tune with kids. I love to listen to the wisdom that they come up with. In fact, my seven-year-old was saying to me the other day, he said, uh, I know why you become a pastor. 
I said, why? He said, because you wanted God to forgive you all the terrible things you did in your childhood. <laughs> Unfortunately, my children heard from my siblings some terrible things, and then they tell it to their kids that they should wait until they get older. <laughs> but I love the wisdom that comes out of their mouth. I read about this Sunday school teacher who was teaching nine-year-olds, very braggadocious guy, put his head, chin up, and he said to the boys, he said, boys, why do people call me a great Christian? Well, there was silence in the classroom. And finally, Billy said, maybe because they don't know you? <laughs> Wisdom. Wisdom. Paul said, Abraham had nothing to brag about, for he was saved by grace alone through trusting of God, which was gifted to him from God. Verses 6 and 8, as I said, Paul said, David too were justified before God by God's faith. You can brag about what God has done. You can brag about God's faith. Verses 9 to 17 of chapter 4, you can brag about God's grace. You see, during Old Testament times, many rabbis would take something that is meant to be symbolic, that God intended for it to be a symbol, a reminder, a sign. In fact, that's what the word sacrament is. The word sacrament means a sign. There's nothing sacred about a sign. It's just sign says, go this way. And so, many things in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God intended for it to be only symbolic. But they twisted it, and they made it to be necessary for salvation, just like the medieval church. The medieval church was trying to concentrate the power <coughs> in the hand of the church and in the hand of the priests. So what did they come up with? They said the priest has the power to actually take this symbolic wine and the symbolic bread, and he actually can turn it into the real flesh and blood of Jesus. They took something that is symbolic, and they turned it into something necessary for salvation. And they say you can't be saved without going to Mass. What did they mean by the rabbis? What did they mean by this? Why did they load people with the list of do's and don'ts and this and that and the other thing? There were 600-plus items that they had to deal with. And that's why Jesus became angry with them for twisting the Word of God. Things were meant and intended by God to be symbolic, to be a reminder, to be a sign. They turned it into something that is absolutely a burden and necessary for salvation. Look at Romans 4, verses 9 to 17. Paul said, Abraham was truly justified in the sight of God years before the symbol of circumcision. Years. He was justified before circumcision. And that's why he draws, he draws this parallel and said, you know, all the real descendants of Abraham who are saved by faith like Abraham, not just the physical descendants of Abraham. Circumcision was only meant as an outward symbol. Uh, it's a reminder of God's calling for His people. It's a reminder for their privilege 
of, of being given the opportunity to know the one true God, the God of heaven and earth. Not only that Abraham was justified before circumcision, but he was justified 600 years before the law was given by Moses. 600 years. He was not justified by the law. He was justified by grace. My beloved friends, the power of salvation is in God's grace alone. Not in man's reaching out and receiving that grace. But many people would love to give the credit to themselves. They really do. And the whole, whole denomination teach, you know, it's, it's, it's you the one who did it. <laughs> no. All I did is I stretched my hand and received the gift. But there's more. Abraham's faith in itself did not make him right with God. It was reckoned to him. It was credited to him. It was deposited in his account. What does that mean? That Abraham did not earn his salvation. It is God who credited to him. If you work on a job, and that's the argument Paul makes, and you get a, a check every month or every week or whatever the system you have, that's, you earned that. You worked for that. Uh, that's, that's your wages. But when it is given to you completely free, then it is just credited to you without you having to do anything about it. When someone gives you credit without collateral, what do you call that? God bless you, we got one. <laughs> when somebody gives you credit without collateral, what do you call that? We got a few more. See, human pride does not want to accept the fact that they did nothing toward their salvation. I've heard it from evangelical preachers. God did his part, and I did my part. Really? You mean you equating what you did with what God did? Beloved, that is an error, and that is what keeping the church from being absolutely revived. I'm going to come to more, say more about this in a minute. Because Abraham valued that unspeakable gift, because he valued this incredible grace of God, this unearned merits and favor of God, because he valued it so much that when God said to him, offer Isaac the son of promise, he went ahead and ready to do it. He was willing to do it. See, God did not let him go through with it. But he was willing to do it. That's all God was looking for is willingness. He was willing to offer Isaac. I bet Abraham, and as Hebrew says that, not just I'm not making it up. I'm sure Abraham said, wow, this is incredible. I'm going to watch the first resurrection in history. The God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. He's going to create, he's going to have a resurrection. Listen to me, please. I don't know. What or who your Isaac may be. You do. I do. The question is this. Can you truly trust God who gave you the greatest gift of all? That's a gift that cannot even be compared with anything in this whole world. 
Can you trust the God who gave you the gift of salvation so that you are willing to offer whatever your Isaac may be on the altar? You notice I said willing? God doesn't want it. God, God gave it to you. God gave you everything. Are you willing to place whatever it is that you're holding on to, that you're cherishing so much on the altar? I'm going to keep saying it. You notice I said willing. Willing. I'm absolutely convinced. Listen to me, beloved. Listen to me. I'm absolutely convinced that if believers in the 21st century, listen to me, if believers in the 21st century would value that gift of salvation enough, if we are truly overwhelmed with gratitude to God for that gift of salvation, if we are truly thankful and grateful of this unspeakable gift of salvation, uh, they would trust God absolutely and fully with all of the Isaacs, This is a personal opinion. It really is a personal opinion, so take it as it is. The 21st century professing Christians have devalued the gift of salvation and gave themselves the credit, and that will do it. That will devalue it. Only when we get back to valuing, to cherishing, to treasuring, that incredible, unspeakable gift. Until we do that, and when we do that, we will see a revival like we have not seen in modern times. But the problem with the so-called evangelicals today is that they say, I follow Jesus. Aren't I wonderful? Listen to some of those. I follow Jesus. Isn't he lucky to have me? That really is. Just listen with discerning ears. I follow Jesus. Isn't he fortunate that I'm following him? I'm a follower of Jesus. Oh, give me a break. Here is a sad dilemma today. Because we do not value that unspeakable gift of salvation, we value our Isaacs more than the gift. Because we have devalued it. I don't know, as I said, who or what your Isaac may be. You do. It could be possessions or possession. It could be prestige or reputation. It could be business or net worth, whatever it may be. You know, only you know. Here's a fact that you need to remind yourself every waking moment. God is the one who gave you everything you have, and He can take it back if He wants to. My ardent prayer as I began to think about this series from Romans, my ardent prayer that we in this place begin to truly value that gift of salvation, that unearned credit 
that undeserved grace more than we value our Isaacs as we study through the book of Romans, that we begin to move and trust God to move in our midst so that He may get all of the glory, not part of it. This is the only way I believe with all my heart that we're going to experience the untold blessings. See, when Seville talk about blessings, particularly in this kind of prosperity gospel times that we live in, they think about money. And listen, the store, stores of heaven has untold blessings for those who truly, truly value the gift of salvation. Brag about what God has done. <clears throat> Brag about God's faith. Brag about God's grace. Fourthly, you can brag about God's power, not yours. Look at verses 18 to 25. I often try to imagine, and I did the series when I, I did the series on counting stars when you can see none, and I, throughout the series I, I kept imagining when God changed Abraham, because that's his, his name was Abram, when God changed it to Abraham, which is the father of many, I, I, I try to imagine in, in, in my mind's eye, and I go back to that time in history, Abraham goes into a business meeting. I don't know whether they were trading camels or trading goats or whatever they're selling and buying, and he goes to this business meeting, shaking hands, introducing himself. Hello, I'm the father of many. I'm the father of many. Because they all knew what the meaning of the word was. I'm the father of many. And uh, people would say, uh, oh, this is amazing. Uh, how many children do you have? Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, none. <laughs> Can you imagine the snickering and the laughing behind his back? Can you imagine the gossip and the murmur that went on behind Abraham's back? <laughs> He's named the father of many. He has no children. But Abraham kept on trusting God. He kept on trusting in his promises. He kept on trusting in his word. And the times when his trust faltered, and it faltered many times, the time when his faith weakens, the time when he tried to help God out, he gave us a 4,000-year-old problem that nobody can solve in the Middle East. Think about that. It's my personal opinion. Nobody will be able to solve it. Because I love peace, I long for somebody to solve the problem. But it's a 4,000-year-old problem. I already told you that it wasn't his weak faith that saved Abraham. No. No, no, no. It's God's faith that he gave to Abraham, which sustained him. See, Abraham knew that it's not by power nor by might, but by spirit, says the Lord. He was hitting 100, and Sarah was hitting 90. They were ready for a nursing home, not a nursery. But he kept on trusting. He kept on trusting. And remember this. He did not have a Bible. 
He did not have a Bible study group to go to. He did not have a home group to go to. He did not have a Bible preacher and a Bible teacher. He had none of that. But Abraham knew enough about God that he gave him that gift of salvation. He gave him that gift of faith that he would keep his word. He'll keep his word. As if to say, I can trust him. I can trust in his power. I have seen his power. He brought me out of Haran. He took me into Bethel. He saved me in Egypt. He strengthened me to take on four kings with their armies. He will not let me down. He will work his purposes out. He will not slumber nor sleep. He will never forsake me nor forget me. He is the God of all the earth. He is the God of justice. And he will vindicate me and vindicate his truth in me. No wonder Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. What God did, he privileged Abraham, just as he did with John the Revelator later on. He privileged Abraham to peer into the annals of history down the future. 2,000 years from that time, he allowed him to see the future and to see the Messiah coming, fulfilling the promises of God. And he rejoiced in seeing that day, and by faith he looked forward to it. Listen to me, I'm getting ready to close. The God who has freely given you the gift of salvation, the God who has freely given you the gift of faith, he wants you to trust him fully with all of the Isaacs that he has placed in your hands. Can you truly say, I fully trust him? Can you truly say that? Well, at least don't say it if you don't mean it. But if you mean it, you can say it, I fully trust him. You can say it with me. I And there may be a person here today who are yet to trust the Lord Jesus for his salvation. The very fact that you are here is that God has a plan for you, and he wants you to hear his message of love and how he's longing to give you that gift of salvation. And so as we pray, you can say, Lord Jesus, open my heart to receive that gift. But for those of us who have known him, who have experienced him. Even we experience the ups and downs of life, but we saw him even in the midst of the tough times. We've seen him in the good times. We see him in the bad times. We walk, he walked with us. He sustained us. He kept us to this day. Will you say, Lord, I fully trust you? Lord Jesus, I pray in the name of the mighty, unmatched, unchanging. Lord Jesus, I pray in your name that if there's a person here today who has never heard and never committed, never received that gift, this will be their day. But for your children who have been sitting under the Word week after week, day after day, and then they become hardened to, to it, I pray in the name of Jesus that you'll give us one more chance, one more opportunity, 
that we cease to be hardened of heart, and that we will begin to truly, truly value the gift of salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before sing the next song and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I want to, on your behalf, tell you how delighted, how thankful to the Lord I am for the parents, for Connie Musselman who talked him through this course to prepare them for officially being admitted to the Lord's table. This is the first time they publicly admitted to the Lord's table. And as I call their names, I want them to stand up. And I want you to know again, I want to thank God for you. I want to thank God for your parents. I thank God for our children ministry. William Beebe. Mariah Bell. Lexi Bergman. Jillian Bergman. Johnny Davison. Noah Dutcher. Olivia Everhart, Ella Hasna, Abby Holsinger, Ryan Holton, Maggie Hunter, Andrew Kim, Iva Mr. Mr. Colo- forgive me, I, I started when I speak, Mr. Kohler, Stephen Maxwell, Desmond Moss, Josh, Joshua Parker, Wesley Wren, Margaret Wren, Ben Von Drack, Madeline Jane Welcher, Elise Yerkoba, and Catherine Zelnick. I want you to know, as a congregation, We want to welcome you to the Lord's table. Will you give them a warm welcome? I I know Miss Connie has taught you all you need to know, and there's nothing for me left to say except to say welcome. God bless you and your families. Let's stand together and prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table.